All right, if you would turn to Leviticus chapter 9. Um, this is the first sermon I've ever preached from Leviticus. I don't know if this is the first Levitical sermon here at Christ Community or not, but um, I will tell you, it, it has been a great joy this week to study Leviticus 9. And God has just been so gracious to me, and it has ministered so much to my heart that I hope that uh, when we get out of here about 2.30 or 3, that... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I hope that it will minister to you as well. And one of the things that's so beautiful to me about the book of Leviticus is what it really is about. And I think this is where we get it wrong. Most of us have probably somewhere along the way come to see the book of Leviticus as, um, if, you're, if you're in a Bible reading plan, as the valley of the shadow, <laughs> that through numbers, which is not the way to view it, actually. Leviticus is this wonderful book that actually ties in very well with what Robbie talked about last week. It is the book that, that teaches the people of God how to dwell in his presence, how to enjoy him uh, without the eternal mediator yet come. So it's pointing forward to Jesus in its entirety. And it's all about God's desire to dwell with his people. Now, if you do try to read it on your own at some point, I would give you a recommendation. It would be great for you to read the book of Hebrews in concert with the book of Leviticus. Because Hebrews talks about how Christ fulfills all of the various things that are set up within, uh, within the book of Leviticus. And it's just a beautiful uh, fulfillment of the, of the picture that God was giving to the people. He wanted them to know that he loved them. That's what Leviticus is about. It's about God's love. And if we read it in any other light, uh, we, we miss the point of the book. Now, are there some heavy things in there? Yeah, because it's, it, we, we struggle to get along with each other. This is the reason rules have to be made, is we, we actually struggle to dwell with one another in peace and purity, which is why we have the fifth vow that we have. And so what we're going to see in this portion of Leviticus is God's grace. God's grace to his people so that they would know that he loves them and that there was nothing in them that would keep them from him or he from them, ultimately. And so um, as, we, as we think about Leviticus 9, we have to look back a little further and begin in Exodus 20. And we're going to do this fairly quickly, so we're not going to read all that. But in Exodus 20, a problem starts. So if you remember where the people of God are at this point, so where Robbie left off, God had come to Moses and said, I'm going to use you to lead the people out of Egypt. And Moses essentially said, who am I? And God said, that isn't really the question. The question is, actually the statement is, I am, and I will be with you, and so go forward. And so we have the 10 plagues, and finally Pharaoh lets them go, and you may be thinking, why all that drama? Well, the 10 plagues essentially were the deconstruction of all the Egyptian gods so that people would know for sure that I am is God, Yahweh is God. And so they come out in this wonderful worship service. If you remember in Exodus 15 through the Red Sea crossing and the destruction of Pharaoh's army, and they sing that contemporary hymn of Moses, contemporary for its time. It'll be reworked in the book of Revelation as the song of Moses and the Lamb. So it'll show back up, right? We're going to sing it someday, but as, as people who truly understand the words. And it doesn't take a few verses, and we don't know exactly how much time, when the people begin to grumble at the end of Exodus 15, and they're just, they're just fussing. They don't, like the, they don't like the food, and they're worried about the water, and, and, and they're, just, they're confused. Are there not enough graves in Egypt? Did you bring us out in the wilderness to kill us, Yahweh? So then you have the Sinai comes, where Yahweh is going to speak to the people. And if you remember, at the end of Exodus 20, the people say, we are terrified. Let us not hear. Now listen to this. Let us not hear God's words, Moses. Let us hear from you. Now, what just happened? They just yoked themselves to a lesser God, Moses. They only wanted to hear from him. They didn't want to hear directly from God. They were afraid and the mountain was quaking. And I understand it would have been a, a pretty terrifying sight. But they chose to place themselves under man instead of hearing directly from God. Which is why by the time you get to Exodus 32, you have the problem that erupts. Which is, Moses is on the mountain, he's been there for a while, and they don't see him anymore. And they're freaked out, and they're like, hey, the guy we yoked ourselves to, we don't see him anymore. And we don't know if he's coming back. So, Aaron, you take all this gold that we have and make something that we can follow. Now think about that for a second. 
make something we can follow? That man could make something worthy of following? And when he does, what's interesting, he takes even the gold from the children, which is instructive. What did that do to the next generation? He included everybody. The the stain of this is on everyone. So he throws all that gold in the fire and out comes a golden calf. And he offers it up and he says, this, this is your God who led you out of Egypt. Now, where did a golden calf figure into any of that stuff east of Egypt? Nowhere. And if you remember, how did the people respond? One raucous party broke out. A worship service like this world has never seen. Anything went and anything was gone. If you remember, Moses comes down and and Joshua says, it sounds like there's war. And there was. It was spiritual. Moses, in anger, breaks the tablets and he is furious with the people. He's tried to intercede on their behalf. God is also furious with them. If you remember, it also contains the story that is very heartbreaking where the Levitical priests are told, take your swords, put them on your side, and kill them all. The cost was incredibly high. And God said, I will pour this plague out upon them to remind them of Egypt. So it looks like that's really where the Bible probably should have ended in darkness, right? Exodus 32 and we're out. But it doesn't end there, does it? In fact, the book of Exodus doesn't even end there. It continues in God's grace. In fact, where does the ark of Exodus go toward as it goes toward the end of the book? It's actually the establishment, the building of the tabernacle. So as you read all that stuff about the tabernacle, what's very important to remember is what's being talked about there. What is so important about the tabernacle? Why is the tabernacle important? There's got to be at least one Christian in here who knows the answer. It's God's house. It's where he dwells with whom? His people. And the beauty of the book of Exodus is how it ends, where the, 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 the pillar is over God's house, and it's so strong. The glory of the Lord is so strong that Moses can't even enter in. God is with his people. So here is a fuller definition of grace than we've given to you thus far, and this is critical to me. See, when we say grace is unmerited favor, even that can be twisted to be made about us, right? Grace is actually God's presence. The gospel is God's presence. It is Emmanuel, God with us. And when we make it about anything else, we lose the entire flavor of what it is. And why is it important that God would want to dwell with his people? He's the creator of the universe. He contains all that we could ever want or need. And he wants to dwell with sinners like us in relationship and not just be, but be in relationship to communicate with, to bless, to join in with For us to have dominion, for us to use our gifts to display his glory, it is this wonderful creative enterprise that we have sold far too short for far too long. That's the book of Leviticus. Starts in the first seven chapters. It's all about the offerings that we're going to hear about. And it's basically God commanding the people, this is how you come near me, lest you be destroyed. Chapter 8 is uh, one of my favorite passages. It's the restoration of Aaron. No greater grace in all of, I think, the Old Testament for, for one who is a pastor than to see Aaron who has made such a critical mistake that cost, you got to understand something, it cost a lot of people their lives. This wasn't, this wasn't just something simple. It haunted them for decades. And yet the vestments were put on him to be able to stand before the people of God and speak the words of God. Wow. What did Aaron do to deserve that? Well, if you've read from Exodus 32 to Leviticus 8, you realize nothing. Aaron didn't do anything to deserve being called back and used of God before the people of God to speak words of life after he had declared death and curse over them. And so we come to Leviticus 9, which is where the people of God are going to be atoned for. 
And what great grace. There's going to be this, this shape to the worship service that is also instructive to us that I don't want you to miss. And so we'll, we'll get through the whole chapter. Um, we won't be able to handle every jot and tittle, um, but we will, should be able to cover enough that if you have questions later, we can talk about it. But before we do that, I think there's a question we have to ask. What most consistently reminds you of who you are? What is it that most consistently reminds you of who you are? Is it, for those of you who are parents, the behavior of your children? For those of you who are in school from third grade on up, is it who you sit with at lunch? Right? And for those of you who are currently in third through 12th grade and who you sit with at lunch, show of hands real quick in all seriousness. How many of you who've graduated are currently married to the person you sat with in fifth grade? I see no hands. Let me just remind you that who you sit with, how about even 12th grade? There may be a couple on this one. All right, there's a couple. So it really doesn't matter to the very end, actually, who you sit with. And so, uh, but, but you want to be, I mean, think about it. So many things define us, right? Is it, is it your job? Is your job what tells you who and what you are? Is it your home? Is it where you live? Is it the car you drive? It, what is it that defines you? Is it the, the, the people who acknowledge you or don't? See, we are, so, we are so caught up and, and blown about with every hello or dismissal that we don't even hardly know who we are most of the time. This is the beauty of God's corporate worship, right? And it's the beauty of this opportunity where every week God says, I, I have given you a day the Lord's Day Sabbath, on which you will gather together as a people and be reminded of who and whose you are. This is why it's so critical for us, because I, I don't know many of you, myself included, who are so strong in their faith that you can, you can skip it once in a while, really. That you don't need it all that often, right? No, it's, it's a consistent reminder that we need so desperately. And it's why we are but certainly within the Presbyterian Church, concerned about the regulative principle, which I'll get to a little bit more in a moment, um, is why we care about the shape of our worship so that it tells us clearly who and whose we are. And no part of it can be dismissed. So what defines you? What reminds you most of who you are? This Sabbath day would be worth you thinking about that because there's a bunch of stuff that is defining us that we ought not let it was part of the reason that I had to depart from, from all social media because it had come to matter to me way too much. And you may say, well, you're lame. Well, yeah, I am. Uh, I limp, <laughs> right? And, 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 and we need to really kind of think through of the things in our lives. Are these things helping make us into the kind of people that display God's glory? Everything. Now, for those of you who are concerned, since from the book of Leviticus, you think, huh, starting to smell a little legalism, start floating around the room. No, anything but, we're talking freedom, real freedom, freedom that's costly. If you would turn to the text, and let's look at Leviticus 9, 1 through 6, and see God's provision of the sacrificial means of grace. Hear the word of the Lord. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram for a peace offering to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Now, don't let it be lost on you that the last time God drew near to them in Sinai, remember the response. 
We can't lose that response they had at one time. They, were, they said, we don't want to hear from God. We, we choose you, Moses, as mediator. And then you have the glory of the Lord in the tabernacle at the end of Exodus. And they're beginning to see that the Lord, the presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord is worth their attention. And that they would rather hear directly from the Lord than to be under the yoke of a man just as fallen as they are. And so what you see is that Moses commands Aaron to go first. Don't miss this. Just because Aaron is chosen of the priesthood, he's a high priest, he is not above the necessity for a sin offering and a burnt offering. It is he who must go first in terms of atonement. And would that I could consistently remember and all of us who serve in pastoral ministry, that we would remember that what ought to first define us is our humility and forgiveness, our recognition of our own brokenness, our unarrivedness, our unglorifiedness. That we would always remember that we need Jesus as much as, if not more than, anybody else in the room and that that would be our greatest passion. And that we would recognize that if we don't go first, there is no one for you to follow. And so Aaron is called to go first and notice the grace even in that. That God would allow Aaron to be able to be forgiven at all. Would you be mad at God if he'd have killed Aaron on the spot? I don't think any of us would. And yet he didn't. And despite his sin, which is why we read all of Psalm 118, that's a psalm that Aaron very well could have written as it spoke about his own brokenness. And yet, Lord, you use me. You're willing to forgive me. Notice also what Aaron is called to give that is different in the sin offering than the rest of the people. He must give a bull calf. Now, what do you think God was doing there? Now, some people are skittish about, you know, I wouldn't want to say that God meant anything by that per se. I don't think there's any detail that's lost. And I do think it's okay for things to be poetic. And I do think that that's a poetic justice that he would have to offer the very thing that came out of the fire. The very thing that he said, no, this is your God. No, that God will be slain. Every time he would have to give that bull calf, it reminded Aaron, no, that is not your God. I am your God. And it is I who forgives you. It is I who provide what you need for forgiveness. And so in the sin offering, what is being atoned for is sin. In the burnt offering, this is the next offering, what is happening there is that is the dedication of a life. The aroma of all that stuff being burnt rising to heaven is that person who offers the burnt offering saying, Lord, this is my life. It is unto you. It is for you. My obedience is yours. Use me for your glory. So notice, atonement comes first. In, in the sin offering, forgiveness comes first. And then the dedication of the life in the burnt offering. And then you have the, the cereal or the grain and the, and the peace offering, which is actually a communal meal. They would have eaten that all together. And Aaron, the priest, didn't have to provide this aspect of the offering because the people were to provide enough that the priest would be provided for in the meal. And so they would take certain parts of it. We're going to see later on, it's called the wave offering. He actually kind of takes like a shank of it and waves it around. And so, so what they would do is they were, they were celebrating that they had been restored to fellowship with and be able to enjoy the very presence of the Lord. This is why we'll see in a moment, fire comes out and consumes part of the carcass. That's God dining with his people. And there's peace, and that is worthy of celebration. There's peace between God, there's peace between man. And so you have the sin offering, which is forgiveness. You have the burnt offering, which is the dedication of a life. And then you have the, the grain and the peace offering, and wave offering is included in that, which is the communal meal celebrating the restoration of the people of God. Now you should start to be picking up on some themes here that sound very familiar to you. 
Remember what Paul says in Romans 12. He says, offer your bodies a living what? Living sacrifice. He's speaking to the burnt offering in essence. He's saying, dedicate your lives to the things of the Lord. Note when it talks about how the aroma of the gospel rises and is, is life in the nose of the people who are, who are being saved and it is death to those who are perishing. These concepts are all throughout the rest of Scripture for us to not understand the sacrificial offerings is for us to miss a huge portion of what God is communicating to us. But most importantly, we miss grace in the Old Testament. Where did all these animals come from? Who provided them? God did. Where did all this grain come from? God gave it to the people. Who commanded them what they needed to do in order to have atonement, to be able to come before the Lord their God? Who gave them clear instruction? Again, read Leviticus 1 through 7, and I know you're going to fall asleep because the details are just so much, but in those details is God's great grace, him saying, this is how you dwell with me. And atonement is all of life. It's not partial covers it all. And so often I think we leave that out. And so notice the difference in the reaction of the Israelites to this. They actually respond well this time. And we'll see in just a moment what those services look like. But listen at what J. Ligon Duncan, who preached a sermon on this passage called Aaron and his sons complete the ceremonies. He says this, he says, God provided the ground of your forgiveness in that sacrifice. God's forgiveness of you, the lesson was, is not based on something in you. It's not something based on something you do. It's based on something that God provides. He provided the totality of it. That's critical for us. He's still doing that for us today. Who, who figured that Christ ought to be Savior? God did. God sent him so that we could be restored to him. This is why we're all the time pressing the issue and saying, you're not being saved from God, away from his presence, you're being saved into his presence, to him. Because the good news is that the creator of the universe wants a relationship with you. And he wants to bless you and he wants to love you and he wants to see you flourish. Would that we would have the same attitude in how we love our neighbor. So, let me ask you this, as this is the corporate worship has been set up here in Leviticus, what is your view of weekly corporate worship? Now, I may be preaching to the choir because you're here, but what is your view of it? Is it something that you view as drudgery, which, by the way, I would totally get if I didn't have this job? Right? I can get all excited because I get to talk to y'all. I mean, I get, to, I get to do the thing, right? But if I had to sit and listen to somebody week in and week out, which I did for a long time, by the way, and still do periodically, y'all do notice I'm here. I don't take those Sundays off when Robbie or those guys preach. I know some of you thought I was raptured last week because just my coat was there, but I stood in the back. It's funny how few of you went to the bathroom with me standing in the back. We're going to make a scarecrow of me and put him in the back. <laughs> Let's talk about that right now. And if you're pregnant, you're fine, Kelly, and any other pregnant one. You're free to roam. <laughs> but what is your view? Is it, is it just drudgery? Is it just, I mean, because again, where, what points do you think you're going to get for gutting this thing out? If that's the view of it. Do you even get what we're trying to do week in and week out? Because we have this pattern. It is pretty much followed every single week. There's a shape to our worship, which I'll get to in the next portion. But, but do you view corporate worship as about you? Do you view it as a, you know, something tradition made up? No, this is God's call to his people. That's why in the book of Hebrews it says, don't forsake the meeting together which is not just about corporate worship, but does not, not include corporate worship. That's something they did. did. Did Paul forsake the meeting together whenever he had opportunity to be in synagogue? Did Jesus? No, he didn't. Now, I understand that for some of you, you've been doing this for a long time. You've heard a whole bunch of sermons in your day, and you're pretty much of the attitude that, hey, first off, he really shouldn't be saying anything brand new. 
That'd be weird. The gospel should be pretty consistent over time. But, but maybe you have the attitude that you can't be taught anything anymore. Maybe you've got a seminary degree. Maybe you've studied a little bit of language. Maybe you've, maybe you've listened to better than what I can give you. It's not about that. You're to hear from God, not from me. And the word, we, we make sure the word's in here every week so you can't say it's not. In fact, some of you probably think, I could, we could use a little less. That's Psalm 118, that was like 29 verses, man. I don't know when we're getting out of here. I'm scared. But you can't say that God's word isn't part of it. And you can't say that you couldn't learn from God's word just by hearing it. Because that's a denial of 2 Timothy 3 now, isn't it? And you can't say, ultimately, that it comes down to you'll let Jesus work it out on the other end. No, it's being worked out now, actually, in you. And so we've got to be careful of our view of corporate worship because the wrong understanding of what it is and what it's intended to do and be can lead all of us astray. And so, how are you approaching it? Is it just duty? Or do you come expectant because you know God wants to dwell with and speak to his people because he promised that whenever people gathered together, he'd be there. Now notice what the promise didn't entail. If you had a dynamic speaker. Like, I'm God. All right, I've had to listen to all this junk a bunch of times. Heck, I wrote it. I need a dynamic speaker. I need somebody to give a new spin on it, right? That seems a little blasphemous for me to stand up here and talk God as if he's a redneck. But but you get what I'm saying. Does God say, no, 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 the music's got to be, I mean, even I got to get the feels. I I don't have skin, but if I did, it should have goosebumps. Right? Is it, is it that certain people would sit in certain places or people would do certain things? That's, no, God shows up despite all of our frailty, and that is grace. He, did, he shows up despite all of our sin, all our dividedness, all of our nonsense. God says, I will be with you. And that is grace indeed. Turn back to the text. Let's read through how the sacrifices are actually conducted. Now, as I read this, it's not going to be terribly exciting because we're going to talk about livers and blood being splashed and all this kind of stuff. What I want you to, in your mind, to do is think of this from the sensory perspective, right? Um, I I tried to see if we could get some animals and sacrifice them so you guys have the full-on experience. No, I'm just kidding. You can't do that. That's, That's bad. That is blasphemous. But think of it from the sensory perspective. What would it have been like to hear all of this slaughter and to smell all of this death and flesh being burned and blood being splashed? What would it have been like from a sensory perspective? Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people. And bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat and the kidneys and long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar. As the Lord commanded Moses, the flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. And they handed the burnt offering to him piece by piece, and the head, and he burned them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it, and burned it on the altar beside the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace, offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail and that which covers the entrails, and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver... 
They put the fat pieces on the breasts, and he burned the fat pieces on the altar. But the breasts and the right thigh, Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses had commanded. Now think about how all that would have smelled. Think about just the visual nature of it. Those animals, if you've ever seen an animal slaughtered, they're not terribly happy about it. And it's, and it, and it's just, it would have been overwhelming from a sensory perspective. If you think about it, especially the, the sin and the burnt offering portion of it would have been just, just overwhelming. Blood and stench and burned flesh. You ever smelled burnt entrails? So the people of God were being assaulted with their sin, in essence. And it was a full sensory experience. This is a lot of the reason why some of our brothers and sisters in the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church, they do the bells and the smells. Positively, they don't burn entrails, as it turns out. They burn incense. They think it's very important for the whole of the sensory experience to be included in the worship service. And so here, they would have been confronted with the cost. It was a very visual thing. It was a very sensory thing. And so as they moved through these things, some aspects of it would have been noxious to them. Some aspects would have been pleasing. The pleasing portion would have been the meal afterward. After, and think about that trying to eat after all that had gone on. Right? That would have been an interesting thing to have to do and the, all that goes into that. Because we're not talking about a handful of people. We're talking about a lot, a significant amount. Do you know how much blood this would have been involved in all this? How long it would have taken? And so, it, but the point of it was to reflect to them the full nature of atonement, that it was the whole of their lives that was being dealt with, not just forgiveness of sins, but the dedication of their life the renewal and restoration of the covenant with God, that they could sit down and eat together in celebration, in peace. Our worship services have a similar shape. And I want to walk through that with you. So if you have your bulletin, you can flip it open on one side. Um, It has all of the worship elements. Now, I know if you've been through membership, you've heard a lot of this stuff before, but it's important for you to understand, I think, why we do what we do. And all of it has been thought through. Now, you may say, but different churches do different things. Yes. And they may have different reasons for doing them. They they may communicate similar things, but by doing different things. But I want you to understand what we understand about the regulative principle. Now, let's answer this question. Did God lay out a New Testament worship service somewhere so that we know for sure we're doing what we're supposed to be doing? No, he didn't. I wish he had. It would have saved us a lot of doggone trouble in this whole worship war nonsense. But he gave us enough elements to to make sure that the the key thing is that Christ be exalted and exemplified and you know you're forgiven and that God is with you. That's what every worship service should do. So this is how we attempt to do that. So just as God called Moses to give the instruction to Aaron, which was Leviticus 1 through 7, we too are called to worship. You know the call to worship, we're not calling to God. Right? We're not, hey God, we're ready. Come on in. We're reading some scripture. No, the call to worship is God's call to us, his people, to gather. That's why we read scripture. That's why we hear from God's voice first after the announcements and opportunities. We hear from God calling us to worship. We respond with a confession of faith, a recognition that he is Yahweh. And then we pray a prayer of invocation which is, again, a recognition of God gathering in presence with his people. And that first song you will recognize is always about God the Father. Rarely does Jesus show up in the very first song because we want you to remember that you're being saved to God, not from him, that it is he who calls us, it is he who sent Jesus, right? So that's the first part of the service is intended to do that, to remind us it is God's command that we gather And he is with us. And then we move to what would be the equivalent of the sin offering. We confess our sins. So we openly, as a result of the holy God being in our midst, we first remember who we are without him and our need for him in the confession of sin. Now, some of you may say, 
I don't pray that stuff out loud because I'm not guilty of half that stuff. And that may be true. Maybe you're not guilty of a lot of it, but it's the communal confession. I guarantee you collectively we're breaking them all. And so we confess together as family, recognizing that no one should be left out. And then we receive the assurance of pardon, right? Which was the beauty of the sin offering is that it, it guaranteed pardon. By God's hand. So we hear from his word and then we sing a song in celebration of Jesus. That's why that second song is always about Jesus. And Christ is featured there as part of what would be the sin offering. And then we move into what's the equivalent of the burnt offering. This is why we sit after that song. There's a pedagogical reason for that. Because Christ's finished work allows us to rest in our forgiveness. And then we have an opportunity to dedicate our lives, beginning with the thing that is probably most predominant in our culture, which is our money, our offering. And we sing a song that should be encouraging to us to live out what is being said. And then the sermon, this is why I always say the sermon is not the main part of our worship service. All you do is hear the sermon. You have missed the beginning of the movie and the end. The sermon is a challenge to us to live out dedicated lives as a result of God's call and Christ's forgiveness. And then we celebrate. If we have the Lord's table, then we get to celebrate just as they did to sit down at that communal meal together and partake of the goodness of our restoration with God. Baptism, same thing, reflective to us, the entering into covenant community together. And that last song is a song of celebration. And the benediction is God's blessing upon us. And should we always remember that that's what it is. So our service takes on the same shape. God commands sin offering, burnt offering, peace, grain, and wave offering. And so I hope that you can continue to, to be blessed by that even though it is the attempts of men in need of a Savior who don't always get it right. We don't always pick the best songs. We don't always pick the best scriptures. We don't always preach the best sermons. But we are offering up what it is that God has given to us to give back to him and to remind you of who you are and whose you are. R.K. Harrison says this. He says, The order of the sacrifices described in the ritual prescriptions constitutes an important guide for Christians with regard to the principles of spirituality underlying divine worship. Of the three concepts enunciated in the sacrifices, the one that had priority concerned cleansing from sin that had to be done first. Denoted... By the sin offering, when proper atonement had been made, the worshiper was to surrender his life and labor to God as indicated by the burnt and cereal or grain offerings. Finally, he was to enjoy fellowship with God within the context of a communion meal with the peace offering furnished. So, how is the fact that you are forgiven, your atonement, which by the way should be the most defining thing about you, how is it affecting how you live? How is, it, how is it having any impact on how you live Monday through Saturday or how you function in corporate worship on Sunday? How, what impact is it having? Is it changing your ability to enjoy worship? Is the fact that you are atoned for and being reminded of that week in and week out, which by the way, again, we've agreed we all need. And again, maybe I'm insufficient in doing so, but that ain't got nothing to do with it. Christ is sufficient. It's what God has done, not what we, any of us in humanity do. And are your ethics changing? Are you loving your neighbor more because of who you are and whose you are and what he calls you to be? Are you growing in gratitude? Or do you struggle with entitlement? Are you struggling with what God has given you and saying it's not enough? Or it's not the right thing, it's not the right spouse, it's not the right job, it's not the right house, it's not the right school, it's not the right parents, it's not the right... Any of that. Our atonement ought to bring us into a place of great thanksgiving and a place where we are as forgiven people defined by our ability to love one another, not who we voted for, 
not what we think about subjects we are not experts on because we read one headline from HuffPo or Slate or Washington Po or whatever, right? That what we ought to know most about is who we are as forgiven ones. And that we can navigate in a world that's going to change and do its thing. It's going to keep spinning east of Eden. And there's still nothing new under the sun. And how are we being defined by our worship? Look at Leviticus 9, 22 through 24 as we close out. In God's blessed and glorious presence with his people, look at how he responds to the worship offering of his people. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and he blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. What an amazing thing, especially in light of Exodus 32, that this man who had caused so much death among the people of God could walk out from having made the sin offering and the burnt offering and he could raise his hands to heaven and bless them. Do you understand the grace in that moment? We don't have any of Aaron's emotions recorded, but I cannot imagine that his eyes were dry as he was able to bring blessing upon the people instead of the curse that he had unleashed and cost so many. And notice the people's response, that they who were once afraid of the presence of the Lord, they now are so excited to be near the Lord their God. And when they see God consume, that consuming fire come out and receive the offering that was for him on the altar, they shouted and they fell down in worship. wish that we as Presbyterians didn't let the Charismatics take all the good stuff that's actually biblical. Would that we could show a little better emotion than we do, as if it's all foregone conclusion, as if we've got it all figured out. I know the solas. I'm good. No, you don't know the solas if that's your attitude. If you knew them, you would say it more humbly and with tears in your eyes. So what is the true goal of worship? What does this text teach us is the actual goal of worship? That God would be present with his people and he would be glorified. The goal of worship is not that you would be entertained. I just finished reading the book Brave New World. So this is heavy on my mind. That, and, and, and there's a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, which speaks to this current circumstance. And that, so the whole idea behind Brave New World is not that you will be under totalitarian uh, an Iron Fist, which is 1984 and Big Brother, George Orwell's classic, but instead that we would be held fast by our own pleasure. We would just say, entertain us. Just entertain us and we'll do whatever you want. Keep us safe, keep us secure and entertain us. Don't you dare challenge us. Don't you dare try to get up in the kitchen and talk about our stuff. No, entertain us. Deadly. That's a deadly idea. So the true goal of worship is that God would be glorified and that we, his people, would be reminded of who he is and who we are in reference to him as the beloved. So the thing I would ask you, and this is a tough question, and you really need to hash it out. If coming to Christ Community Church for worship, so that's the presupposed thing because you're here, uh, is that actually helping you to display the presence and the glory of God in your life? And if it's not, please, by all means, find where it does. Because our, our goal as session and diaconate is that you would be able to flourish in worship. You sitting here, uh, an ongoing martyr, is not helping anyone. Now, those sound like harsh words, but they're actually encouragement to you because I know God is faithful, and I know that we're not the only church preaching the gospel because he promised there would be more than just one. And I know that he loves you and that he doesn't want the stench 
of a poorly offered sacrifice. We have Leviticus 10 following Leviticus 9, in which Nadab and Abihu think, hey, I got a great idea. Let's offer strange fire. Let's do something innovative. Because what they just saw wasn't near enough. And how did that go for old Nadab and Abihu? Ended pretty poorly. Actually, they died. God's judgment pours out upon them because they thought they could do whatever they wanted. They thought they needed to whip the people's emotions into a further frenzy. They wanted control. They wanted to be God. And they found out that they weren't. So it's important that we remember the true goal of worship and that we recognize it is for all of life. Right? And so, here's the truth. You are all myself included, going to leave this church someday. Now, there's a few options. One, which is morbid, death. Okay? It's just true. It happens. Two, um, God will call you somewhere else. Now, if, let me make a, a plea here. If God calls you somewhere else, which he does, by the way, periodically, then we ought to be able to pray for you. If God's in it, we are God's people, we're kingdom-minded, you ain't got to leave under shadow of darkness and send me a text message or an email or an anonymous note, cut out a little letters, right? We, don't, we ain't got to do the ransom note. We can celebrate that God is good, right? This is how we reflect this. Unfortunately, we don't always get that opportunity. We don't. We'd love to. Or you're going to leave because something happens between you and someone else and you just can't get it reconciled. And you just can't worship because you can't bear the sight of that other person or you're afraid of running into them. Hey, you guess what? That happens sometimes. We're frail people, all of us. And we're self-centric. And yes, you may say, well, wait, wait a minute, Cameron. You can't say this is okay to happen. No, it's not really okay that it happens, but I recognize that it does happen. Even in that, we ought to be able to say goodbye to you. Because your issue is not with everyone. It's just with someone. And if we reach an impasse, as Paul had to do with his own very, very good friend, Barnabas. He had to part ways sometimes. And that's okay too, because God is over the whole kingdom. He's not located in just one place. Or it may be any number of other reasons that you may leave this place, because we all will someday. God moves you to uh, Anchorage, Alaska because he doesn't love you, because that's a terrible place to be moved. No, I'm just kidding. That's not true. He does love you. You get moved. These, these things happen. Let us love one another well. Remember, the world will know who we are by the love we have for one another, and we are not trying to keep everybody. We don't have enough seats for all of Cobb County. So we recognize that there, is, there are good leavings, and we want you to leave for the sake of flourishing in worship somewhere, that you would never forget the purpose of worship, that you would never forget God's grace and his longing to be with you, and that that grace is not limited to one place. So we learn three things from Leviticus 9. One, God calls, let me say that again, God calls his people together weekly to receive the means of grace despite our sin. Second, atonement transforms our whole life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That means you don't bring anything to it. And you may say, well, what? The people brought the sacrifices? That was, yes, that was a passive obedience, right? That was us saying, here, I'm offering, I offer this up in passive obedience because I'm doing what you say, Lord, not what I want. I'm not offering strange fire. And three, the true goal of worship is God's presence and glory displayed in our lives. If there is no evidence if you, can, if you can leave here week in and week out and nobody can tell there's any difference in you whatsoever, then there are some serious questions that need to be asked, right? And, and you want to ask them as I want to tie this into something I said a couple of weeks ago, be a good Berean. We, we want good biblical questions being asked. We want to be challenged where we are drifting into philosophy and traditions of men. We welcome that. Which is why we have a whole session of people for you to engage with in that regard. So we want to be pushed against. Now, where it ain't clear, 
no sword will be drawn. Where it is clear, then there, there lies what matters. Because there are some things that I've heard from time to time people push against that aren't exactly clear on your part or from Scripture's perspective. And there's some things I've even said where I've said, hey, I think this is what it is, but it's not, don't, don't go hanging your hat on it. So we've got to be careful that what we divide over is actually worth dividing over and that we divide well so that the gospel would be spread into more places. That is the goal. So as we finish this morning, my prayer for us all is that we will be blessed by the grace that is so beautifully displayed in the book of Leviticus, at least in chapter 9. It is other places as well. We'll hear from 26 for our benediction. And my hope for you is that it will encourage you to be more of a Berean, that you would approach the book of Leviticus with new eyes, recognizing it as a book declarative of God's grace because he is being so detailed about how you approach him. And I hope that you would give thanks for the book of Hebrews as it displays Christ finished all this stuff. You all don't have to smell burning flesh. It has at least one bonus, right? You don't have to smell blood. You ever smell blood in large quantity? Don't answer that. You get to instead have all of the good that is worship. The noxious aspect has been done away with in Christ. We get to enjoy. We get to celebrate the goodness of God. May you remember that always. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your clear call to us to gather as your people. Thank you that you give us the clarity of Christ and the clarity of salvation. God, thank you that you have displayed in your scripture a variety of elements that we have the ability to choose from in a regulative way. God, may we, instead of being tradition-driven, be biblically driven, and that we, with every worship service, would declare what you sought to say to your people, even in Leviticus 9, and even in services in the New Testament, it was always, always, always to say, I love you, and you are mine, and I am with you. May we, your people, remember that great grace every time we get together and every time we are scattered back out into the world. And may we carry that grace displayed in our ethics, displayed in how we love our neighbor, displayed in how we do our jobs, displayed in how we parent, displayed in how we um, serve each other in marriage, displayed in our singleness, displayed in all that we are. May that define us most of all. In Christ's name, amen.